Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Historical Paranormal. Today, we are discussing Gilles Dray, part two. And in the last episode, we spoke about Gilles Dray's horrific torture, rape, and murder of as many as 100 children. We also spoke about his conviction and subsequent execution, but we did not talk about why he presented no defense of himself, and in fact provided a detailed list of the most heinous tortures possible. Today we're going to discuss that, and you can make your own decision, obviously, on whether he's innocent or not. I will talk about um, my feelings towards the subject, uh, as always, and I'll try to present my case. Because it is still a case. It's still a trial, right? Uh, it's the trial of history. It's a, the trial of memory and memorial. Oftentimes, our names are the only things that we leave behind. In Gilles' case, that was absolutely the case because all of his land after his death was confiscated. I don't know if his family had any money left. I'm sure they had something. But I don't know that they had very much. And to have this name be thought of as the most heinous monster, the monster of Brittany, as you'll see him um, described in some articles, it, it takes away the memory. So it's still a trial of the memory. Anywho, let's go ahead and crack on into it. So Gilles was very calm during the trial and the execution. Maybe he was happy to leave the life of murder knowing that he was a monster and deserved death. We've seen that in a few serial killers in recent memory that felt that this was the only way out for them because they couldn't stop themselves. Maybe. I'm a little bit convinced otherwise. And so was France, even directly after his death. The people, and it's important we separate the monarchy, the church, and the people here, because the people never believed the stories against Gilles, even after his confession. In fact, there was a movement to exonerate him as early as 1443. And the reasoning may be that Gilles was larger than life during his lifetime. He was a national hero, you guys. And he wasn't just a national hero. He was the national hero. He was the best friend and savior on two occasions of Jeanne d'Arc, but sadly not on the day of her death. He was a Marshal of France, and that title, Marshal of France, is generally given to like towns and groups of people, not just one person. But during this time, two people shared this title, and it was Joan and Gilles. So it was a big deal. He was painted in the first episode as this tragic figure. And I did this because during his life, he was seen as having no emotion at all towards Joan. But this... And I am referring specifically to the day that Joan was executed. He was across the river from the city of Rouen with an army. The threat of his army was actually so great that he was warned by the church and the government, that on no uncertain terms, if he attacked, Joan would be thrown into the river for dead, 
presumed innocent or guilty. But I mean, they burned her anyway. And honestly, drowning would have been at least fast. And that may be what he thought. No accounts survive detailing his slide from national hero and best friend of a saint to brutal serial killer of children. I mean, sure, he did confess to the murders, and he told the tribunal exactly how he killed all those kids, with not one bit of physical evidence, but that confession was also extracted under severe torture. Torture was seen as a fantastic method of extracting information, or even a confession, whether the confession ends up being real or not. And let's talk about that. The Innocence Project maintains that confessions given under duress are far more likely to be false, generally because people think that the evidence, or lack thereof, To date, there have been 317 post-conviction exonerations citing DNA evidence in the United States. Newfound DNA evidence, or at least newfound technology allowing for the testing of DNA. In each of these cases, police used interrogation tactics that were misleading or stressful enough to get the accused to confess just to end the situation. And if it happens now, it most definitely happened then. Especially with his co-defendants, his bodyguard and his cousin. They were most assuredly tortured, brutally, until they gave their confessions. And Gilles was told that he could push the torture off until the next day, if he just confessed to everything right then and there. Now, they questioned him in his private bedroom. And I guess he thought that maybe he would get away with torture entirely, like he just wouldn't get it because of his situation in life, his rank. Maybe his um, past military achievements would get him out of it. But no, they just said they'll push it off to the next day. Okay. I mean, it's still torture either way. Whether it happens right then or the next day, it's still going to happen. So he did confess. But he, again, he confessed perhaps thinking that maybe a lack of witnesses would push the courts to say it couldn't have been him. Maybe his reliance on his former glory was still in play. And he thought that he would just get away with it. If indeed he did do it. I mean, the two halves of his life just don't make sense, right? They just don't. He goes from military hero to serial killer. I just don't see it. The play he wrote that we talked about last time, he produced it, he directed it, and it was, and again, I'm going to try. Le Mystère du Siège d'Orléans was to me clearly an overstatement, specifically made to educate everyone around him of Joan's innocence and divinity. He even provided food for everyone who came to each showing, and it went on for months. It went on long enough to completely bankrupt him. But therein, with that statement, lies the trouble. At the point when he made this play, no one in the government had yet to recognize that Joan was anything other than a demonic heretic. 
While he advised and protected Joan during her life, it appears that during the second half of his own life, he couldn't do it for himself. This made with such deliberate expense and extravagance that there was no way for it not to be noticed by everyone possible. During this time, he was also convinced that his family was plotting to kill him over the expenditures and selling of land, so he ended up, for whatever reason, disinheriting his daughter. Maybe she was the one leading the pack, who knows. And you know what? Here's the thing. I can see both sides of this coin. I see why Gilles was doing what he was. But on the other side, I also see why his family chose to take the path of government sanctions against him. To them, he was a man sinking further and further into depression, when depression wasn't a thing that men should sink into, and he was taking his family with him. This wasn't exactly a time when mental illness was cared for and worked on. Instead of thinking that Gilles couldn't control his slide into darkness, they thought he was doing it just to hurt them, just out of spite. So I get it. Let's get to the actual trial for Gilles Duray. The records that exist are scant, and they don't record that over a hundred children went. Numerous publications um, from the. The actual accounts list around 40 missing boys. No girls at all have ever been recorded in the original transcripts. On top of that, only 12 of these boys had full names. The rest were family names or were just left unnamed in general. Of those 12, one or two family members testified, and of those testimonies, one was simply looking for his child, his boy, not accusing Gilles of murdering him. Now, that can be explained, and that can be explained against Gilles that he found these boys elsewhere and brought them back to Tifoge or to Machacool. So maybe that's evidence against him. We don't know. It does bear mentioning that they were not named. There's also a case of evidence being brought forth where boys that he was accused of murdering went missing in Machacool while he was in Tifoge or Champtocé-sur-Loire. In addition, there were no angry mobs, no crying parents. I mean, don't you think that if over a hundred boys went missing, one hundred boys to carry on family names, work the farms or the family businesses, don't you think there would be at least twenty mourning families at court? Maybe even like just ten or five? Because there weren't. There were two. Also, his first confession, prior to torture, did not include murder at all, but did include alchemy and invoking demonic help to achieve his goal of turning base metals into gold, which, given his financial straits after that play, can be understood. I get it. If I had a chance to try and turn base metals into gold, I'd still do it. I'd try. So... Let's get back to his bodyguard. So his bodyguard and his cousin's confessions 
uh, or also suspect, not just because they were gotten under torture, but because they're so different in method and execution. There are plenty of times when not one to three of them (laughs) made sense. None of them lined up. There have even been attempts to exonerate him since the day he was executed, and his daughter had made it a point to memorialize him at his place of execution. Over the years, however, the site became known as more of a pilgrimage site dedicated to St. Anne, so pregnant women would flock to it to bless their breast milk, which is very specific, very specific thing to bless. I would bless my pregnancy if I was pregnant because, you know, back then especially people could easily die. Uh, during childbirth, I would maybe think about that. I wouldn't think like, oh, let me bless my breast milk. Although that also makes sense because, you know, if you don't have that, you'd have to use like a wet nurse and that was difficult. Anyway, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole because I know my brain's wanting to. I'm just going to say that's what they did. But sadly, the memorial was destroyed by the Jacobins during the French Revolution in the 1790s. So, By the way, I'm also not totally sure, before I go on, that this was the daughter that he disinherited or not. Maybe it was. I don't know. It doesn't say. It actually does not include. I'm sure it would be included in, like, a French peerage if I could get my hands on one. So, several notable figures also believed in his innocence, primarily Alistair Crowley and Margaret Murray, a renowned anthropologist. And Crowley's theory was surprisingly more likely that Gilles was killed in the secular pursuit of knowledge. That sounds right. It's not, I don't think, but it does sound like it's a possibility that that at least was part of it. Margaret Murray, however, posited that Gilles was actually a witch that practiced fertility rituals to the goddess Diana. And she writes about this in her book, The Witch Cult in Western Europe. And if you can find a copy, if it's still in print, it's probably worth a read just for that theory alone. In 1992, a trial was organized by Gilbert Protou in a media event broadcast all over France. The goal was to present the evidence that they had against Gilles with a modern attorney and judge. Attorney Jean-Yves Goual-Bressonnier gave a lengthy speech at the UNESCO Amphitheater in May of 1992 and then reconvened all the participants in November of 1992 for a second half to resume all the proceedings. None of these proceedings, by the way, were actually official, So while Gilles was found not guilty, it was really all for show more than anything else. Um, There was somebody who made an attempt to have the French president, Francois Mitterrand, declare this as a legal finding, but I don't think anything was ever done of it or with it. I can't find that there's any evidence that was done for it. So it was kind of just for show more than anything else. It should also be noted that there were no medievalists or no medieval specialists consulted in the hearing. It was really just fact-finding, not really trying to find any kind of primary source or evidence in that direction. It was mostly just, like I said, for show. While some saw that as a great gesture and a writing of a centuries-old wrong, journalist Gilbert Philippe 
writing for Quest France, wrote that it was facetious, provocative, and an absolute joke. And I mean, given that it's not a legal finding and it's not recognized by the government, he's probably right. Is it possible that Gilles was a serial killer? Absolutely it is. Absolutely. I have no doubt that he could have done these things, just not in the exaggerated fashion that history has it right now. For one thing, there would have been some evidence. I mean, there would have been something there, even in the ashes of the stove that supposedly burned the bodies of at least 90 children alone. There would have been some sort of physical evidence. I mean, 90 bodies, there would be something. So to me, this whole farce should be chalked up to his pissing off the monarchy and the Catholic Church by disagreeing with the death of Joan of Arc and kidnapping a priest when he disagreed with him. And that's my case for the exoneration of Gilles de Rye. It's a bunch of little things that add up to one big thing. And sometimes it's the little things that count. I hope you guys enjoyed this dive into Gilles de Rye and to Joan of Arc in some level. So if y'all have any more uh, episode suggestions, I know I've gotten some suggestions, and I'm still looking into those to see if there's just enough there to do a whole episode on. It might be more of a TikTok play. But thank you to set for those who sent me those. Please continue to send them because I love seeing them. Comment on the post that I have for Gilles, and let me know what you think about the whole show. I, again, would love to hear it. Another way that you can help me out is to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts. I believe on Spotify you can rate as well. Anywhere you listen, please rate and review. I recently found myself on Audible, which was super cool. Rate and review there too. Any little bit helps, and it helps me get found by more people. I recently got an email that I was now ranking um, for Apple Podcasts in Russia, which I thought was unbelievably cool. So thank you everyone around the globe for listening, for commenting on the posts, for suggesting story ideas. I appreciate every single one of you. I hope you have a great week. Bye. The Historical Paranormal Podcast is produced, written, and narrated by me, Kristen Nichols.